2 Samuel 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful, and David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, Isn't this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. She had purified herself from her uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David, saying, I am pregnant. So David sent this word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent him to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, and how the war was going. Then David sent to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace, and a gift from the king was sent after him. But Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house. When David was told Uriah did not go home, he asked him, Haven't you just come from a distance? Why didn't you go home? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents, and my master Joab and my lord's men are camped in the open fields. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and lie with my wife? As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. Then David said to him, Stay here one more day, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, Put Uriah in the front line where the fighting is fiercest. Then withdraw from him so that he will be struck down and die. So while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. He instructed the messenger, When you have finished giving the king this account of the battle, the king's anger may flare up. And he may ask you, why did you get so close to the city to fight? Didn't you know they would shoot arrows from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, son of Jerobersheth? Didn't a woman throw an upper millstone on him from the walls that he died in for bears? Why did you get so close to the wall? If he asks you this, then say to him, also your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. The messenger set out. And when he arrived, he told David everything Joab had said him to say. The messenger said to David, The men overpowered us and came out against us in the open, but we drove them back to the entrance to the city gate. Then the archers shot arrows at, this, at your servants from the wall, and some of the king's men died. Moreover, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead. David told the messenger, Say this to Joab. 
Don't let this upset you. The sword devours one as well as another. Press the attack against the city and destroy it. Say this to encourage Joab. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. Our second reading is from the New Testament, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 30. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to your brother, then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you are still with him on the way, or he may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. I tell you the truth, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. You have said that it was said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Good morning, everyone. Oh, well, there we go. This microphone feels like a bit, a bit like me in the morning. Who else got up to watch the soccer this morning? Yeah, yeah, very good. Uh, for those that I haven't met, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors at Grace Anglican Churches. I typically serve at uh, our evening congregation, but periodically I have the joy and privilege of coming here to Gladswood Hills to open the Word of God, which I'm about to do with us this morning from 2 Samuel chapter 11. And I'm going to cheat a tiny bit and dig just a little bit from chapter 12 as well. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. Keep your Bibles open. We'll get stuck into it together. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that you speak to us in your word, the Holy Scriptures, and that you do so by the power of your Spirit at work uh, within and among us. Uh, we pray that uh, you'd help us to set aside hindrances and distractions now, that we would... Uh, Rejoice at and tremble at your word and be built up into the likeness of the Lord Jesus Christ on account of hearing it and considering it together. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, it's a good likelihood that many of you have heard of the saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. I found the quote attributed to this weird guy whose name's Lord Acton, uh, which makes me think he must have been a pretty powerful guy. Uh, power itself does not corrupt. The saying's wrong. Power is not even actually a bad thing. How do I know this? Easy. Our God happens to be all-powerful. 
And there never has, nor will there ever be even a hint of corruption in God. God is light, in him there is no darkness, we read in 1 John. God's use of power is only ever always 100% good. Power can and should be used for good. It's not necessarily something that corrupts. The reason power often is associated with corruption is because it's wielded by people with sinful hearts. Hearts that incline toward evil rather than good. Even with the redeemed people of God, there remains, this side of heaven, residual sinful tendencies in our hearts which, when combined with the wielding of power, can create massive disasters, such as this epic disaster for God's people brought about by the sin of the powerful King David that we come to this morning. With this sad train wreck we're witnessing uh, here in the life of King David, I suspect and I expect there will be so many things that you and I want to know, perhaps especially in regards to the adultery with Bathsheba. But in the way God presents this account uh, to his people, he has some particular things that he wants us to take special note of. And they're not always the things that you and I might naturally think about straight away. So let's brace ourselves for this train wreck and make sure we're letting God do the talking to our hearts this morning. You've probably noticed that the speed and the matter-of-factness with which uh, the events in 2 Samuel 11 are described, I think just adds to their horror. It leaves us exclaiming perhaps David's own phrase, how the mighty have fallen. We get the context or the background from verse 1, which says, at the return of the year, at the time that the kings or messengers had gone out, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, I know our NIVs have a slightly different translation at the beginning there, but I'm convinced that what you see behind me is far more accurate. I can't stand wasting time delving into tricky uh, translation issues, so I'm not going to, but as always, feel very free to come and ask me about uh, uh, why I've put that there. But basically... All we're being told here is that it's been almost a year since the initial confrontation began with the Ammonites. Remember that thing with the messengers? They went there and they cut half the beards and cut the cloak of the buttocks and then the king... Yeah, anyway, it's, it's, about, it's almost a year since that. Um, the Ammonites have now retreated after David uh, basically had their hired armies uh, totally demolished. And of course, they're now, the Ammonites are now helpless. Unlike the vassals or the underlings of that, that great king Hadadezer, who had now made peace with Israel, the Ammonites had not, which meant that it's high time, it's almost a year, that they face the judgment of God's king. So David's army have now destroyed the Ammonites and are laying siege to one of their big cities, Rabbah, where presumably the last lot of them have, have fled for a last stand. David, as we see there in verse 1, remained... In Jerusalem. Initially, in the war with the Ammonites, David had also remained in Jerusalem. He only came out when it was a time for, for the big offensive attack. And you know what? He can do that. We've been told in earlier chapters that God has established David as king over a united Israel and subdued the enemies. He has the power 
such that he can say to one man, go, and he goes, and to another man, come, and he comes. Not necessarily wrong that David is ruling from Jerusalem as he sends people out to fight the battle. But of course, in such a situation, there's the increased temptation to misuse the great power that he has. And so verse 2, one evening, David got up from his bed and walked around the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. Now, every man of God knows exactly what to do in this situation, should it ever arise. Given that, by and large, as part of the very good way that God has designed men, we're likely, generally speaking, to be sexually attracted through visual appeal more than women. Also, the obvious thing to do, quite simply, would be to turn away and just get on with doing whatever else you were doing. Let it go by. Clearly, the view was unintended. We'll soon find out that Bathsheba, what she was doing, was entirely appropriate And the only reason David saw her was on account of the unexpected circumstance of the vantage point of a high roof palace combined with time and chance. And nothing wrong with that, nothing wrong with a naked woman either. In fact, the first praise of a human towards God in the Bible is from a guy who's literally looking at a naked woman. It's good to sort of, yeah, wow, that blows your mind. Anyway, nothing wrong with that, provided that, provided that, David lets it go by. But David failed to be a godly and respectful man at this point. So verse 3, and David sent someone to find out about her. And the man said, she's Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. The implication is that David has not turned away. He's allowed the innocent view to develop, which would happen quite quickly, into a lustful desire. And desire, after it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when full-grown, gives birth to death, James 1.15. But he still, even now, had the opportunity to turn. He's just found out that this woman is someone else's wife. Do not covet your neighbor's wife, says the law. Especially, I might add, in David's case, when you've already got more than one of them for yourself. But sadly, David continues along the dark path. Like most adulteries, there's a lead-up, a series of compromising choices by which a person justifies an increasing closeness to the object of their sinful self-centered lust and fantasy. And then, of course, with brutal rapidity, the bomb goes off. First of all, then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. So short, so matter-of-fact, and therefore so brutal and cutting. We might want to know about Bathsheba's thoughts and motives here. Did she put up a fight? We're going to see in another horrible chapter in a couple of weeks that there was a woman who put up a fight for something really wrong. 
Did David get her intoxicated first? Was she so terrified and so coerced that this could be considered almost rape? Or did things go the other way? Did she encourage what was happening? Did she take delight in the events that were unfolding? All of those things are possible. But they're also immaterial. The focus is on David and his ungodly behaviour. David was abusing his power. He knew, as we'll soon find out, that the woman's husband was away. And when the king's messengers, plural, come to your house and you've got no husband there, it puts her in a rather vulnerable situation, doesn't it? Regardless of how welcome or unwelcome the the events that transpired may have been for her. David's behaviour actually at this point echoes the original fall from Genesis chapter 3. You see, he saw that which was pleasing to the eye and then he took and what he took was in direct defiance of the very clear commands of God. You shall not covet your neighbour's wife. You shall not commit adultery. And compared to David, what little we are told about Bathsheba's behaviour shows she's presented, initially at least, as a righteous woman. The next part of verse 4 says, now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. In other words, she was obeying the law of God given in Leviticus 15. After her regular period, she was washing in order to become ceremonially clean. But of course, the narrator kept that little bit of information until now because it also lets us know there's a possibility she'll be in the fertile part of her cycle. In other words, she could get pregnant. It was funny when I was preaching this at night church, a lot of younger people, I said, do you guys know that that's a thing? Like when people have sex, you know, someone might get pregnant. Just want you to, to know, please assure me that you know that. And yes, they said yes, I was very happy. <laughs> now, that wouldn't have been on David's mind, I suspect. In fact, the next thing we are told, which gives a false sense of finality, is simply that then she went back home. Ah, good. It's all done now. No one will ever know. David had his lustful indulgence and the event is over. Hence, verse 5 comes like a second nasty bombshell. The woman conceived and sent, now she's sending, sent word to David saying, I'm pregnant. So, instead of using his power for good, David has used it to commit adultery. Certainly with some level at least of coercion of the woman involved, given the power imbalance, and now she's pregnant. If ever there would be a time to do serious, hardcore repentance, to apologise profusely to God, to Bathsheba, and certainly to Uriah, to beg for his life, because the reality is that the punishment for adultery is death in the law of God. This would be the time. This would be the time. But sadly, David again misuses his power by attempting to do a cover-up, which of course also ends up being a big fail. Verse 6. So David sent this word to Joab. If you can't remember, Joab's the military commander fighting the battle against, uh, the, fighting the siege at Rubber. David sent this word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite, 
And Joab sent him to David because he can. David says, come and he comes, go and he goes. Verse 7, when Uriah came to him, David asked him how Joab was, how the soldiers were, how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and <clears throat> wash your feet. So Uriah left the palace and a gift from the king was sent after him. No doubt some fancy wine in a nice basket. It's a clever idea. Get Bathsheba's husband back on the pretense of wanting to find out about how the war was going, which is in itself quite a legitimate thing for the king to do, but really with the aim of getting him to have sex with his wife such that it will be assumed that the child she's carrying is his. The whole wash your feet thing is almost certainly an idiomatic way of saying, take off a load, hint, hint, sleep with your wife. But just like many people in the past had their plans foiled on account of King David being more righteous than they anticipated, well, so now David's dodgy plan gets foiled on account of Uriah being more righteous than David anticipated so verse 9 but Uriah slept at the entrance to the palace with all his master's servants and did not go down to his house David was told Uriah did not go home so he asked Uriah haven't you just come from a military campaign why didn't you go home Uriah said to David the ark that's the place whereby God made a dwelling for his name the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents and my commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. In other words, we're sleeping at rough under the stars. How could I go to my house to eat and drink and make love to my wife? Yeah, I know what you meant, David. As surely as you live, which drips with irony because he's done something that deserves death. As surely as you live, I will not do such a thing. You wonder at this point if David feels the sting of his own failing in contrast now to Uriah's holiness, to Uriah's piety. Maybe David should have been out accompanying the Ark of the Covenant with everyone else rather than sleeping with someone else's wife. In any event, David takes another shot. This time he uses his power, his influence, to get Uriah drunk in the hope that it will reduce his resolve to be so righteous. And you know what, that's a brilliant tactic. Because if there's anything that will erode one's righteousness, it's got to be drunkenness. That's a great idea if you want someone to be unrighteous, get them drunk. Drunkenness leads to debauchery, we're told in the New Testament. Which is why all mature Christians are careful to avoid drunkenness. So verse 12, then David said to him, Stay here one more day and tomorrow I'll send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. At David's invitation, which you can hardly refuse, he ate and drank with him and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat among his master's servants. He did not go home. Translation, even with an hopefully very unwanted intoxication... Uriah is still righteous enough to remain devoted to Yahweh. David's cover-up attempt has failed, and so now, now will he finally undergo 
a sackcloth and ashes repentance? Or will he still only think of protecting himself and continue down his dark, destructive path for the sake of his own selfish interest and preservation? Well, as we know, sadly, that's the latter. David now opts for murder as the solution. James 1.15 really is so right, isn't it? Desire leads to sin, leads to death. So, verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it with Uriah. In it, he wrote, put Uriah out in front where the fighting is fiercest, then withdraw from him so he'll be struck down and die. So, while Joab had the city under siege, he put Uriah at a place where he knew the strongest defenders were. When the men of the city came out and fought against Joab, some of the men in David's army fell. Moreover, Uriah the Hittite died. Joab sent David a full account of the battle. You know what's fascinating here? It's that David actually counts on Uriah's righteousness in order to get him killed. You see, if Uriah had been an untrustworthy servant, he might have opened the letter. I mean, what sticky beak wouldn't want to know what letter I'm carrying from the king when I've got all this journey back? I'd want to have a look. And if he did open it up, he'd figure out that it says, kill me, and so he'd go AWOL and that would be the end of it. But sadly, it's precisely because he was righteous that Uriah marched resolutely to the place where he's own people would in effect hand him over to the Gentiles in order to have him murdered. Kind of reminds you of someone, doesn't it? Reminds you of someone who David should have foreshadowed with his righteousness, but now does not. Now the plot to kill Uriah required Joab to do something so tactically stupid that even Joab anticipates that David will be angry, even though David has said, find a way to kill him. Oh man, I, I've, I can kill him, but gee, that, that's a really dumb thing to go right up to the wall where the strongest defenders are and then to lose men, right? So he's worried that even then David will scold him for doing something so dumb. Doesn't that drip with irony as well? It's like his own underling is like oh even though David told me to do this thing if I send the men too close to the wall some of them will die and he's going to say why the heck did you do such a dumb thing silly me I shouldn't be so stupid should I uh what if David thought anyway I'm not going to read the whole account but you get the sense that David really is being so two-faced that it should be him who anticipates his own scolding which I think at this point, he doesn't. The account ends with a profoundly ironic, happy, quote-unquote, ending. Verse 26, when Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son and they lived happily ever after. Notice sadly again, she's not named Bathsheba, she's just the woman or she's just the, the wife of Uriah now mourning for her dead husband. Again, I would love to know how this was taken by Bathsheba. Did she sense or know 
that David was actually responsible for killing her husband? Did she have some kind of guilty relief that she'd not have to explain her pregnancy, at least, to her husband? Did she mourn him like any woman might naturally mourn her dead husband without any thought of the the recent events? Was she glad or was she very sad to be brought into David's house and become his wife? Again, we're not told. Because for the point of God's word here this morning, the point God is making for us, all that stuff is immaterial. What matters is that David is the main actor and his self-centred actions that his power gave him the opportunity to exercise are also clearly in defiance of God's intentions. The last sentence is actually the most chilling and devastating of all, which you wouldn't think when you read it in our English translations. It says, but the thing David had done displeased the Lord. It sounds almost like British and polite. Yes, the thing David did displeased the Lord. Oh, what a pity. Like, yeah, no kidding, you know. Uh, but in the Hebrew, the word for displeased is actually the word for seeing, which, which can often also mean knowing. A good way to render it in English, which I think would capture the ominous and dreadful effect that it really ought to have, is something like, the evil thing David did, the Lord knew. That's sort of, that's my best attempt at, at getting the vibe in Hebrew. A big tragedy for the people of God is that we can so easily forget that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that our Heavenly Father does not see. There is nothing He does not know. There is actually no such thing as doing, saying, or thinking anything in secret. It does not exist. God is not only all-powerful, but He is also all-knowing. If ever there was a perfect case study of that famous verse in Jeremiah 17.9, which says, the heart is deceitful above all things, well, it would have to be David's activity throughout 2 Samuel 11. But the real kick comes on account of that last verse. It's the only time we're out of nowhere, suddenly we're just given God's perspective. That's why it sticks out like a sore thumb. The Lord saw, the Lord knew what David had done. Hence, The heart is deceitful above all things. That's clearly a good description of all that we've seen for for David. And the Lord always looks at the heart. When Mr. Doe thinks that he's all alone and he clicks on that link to the pornographic website, the Lord knows. When Mrs. Doe sends that little mildly flirtatious message to a guy who's not her husband? The Lord knows. And the Lord will never leave the guilty unpunished. Even for those who are his children and who therefore know his ultimate forgiveness in Christ, even then there are always dreadful consequences for sexual immorality. Always. And that's actually what we see throughout chapter 12. Um, with that most awesome setup, if you know chapter 12 about the story of the little ewe lamb, I'll, I'll 
very quickly say, Nathan comes to David. This is how God responds. Nathan comes to David and he goes, there was this bloke who was really poor, had just a, one little lamb, and there was this really rich dude who had hundreds of sheep and cattle. And a traveller came to visit the rich man, but rather than give up one of his own sheep or cattle, he went to the poor guy, took his little ewe lamb, butchered it and served it to the guy. And David is furious with anger and says, that guy ought to die. And Nathan goes, that's right, that's you. Right, that's chapter 12. Now, the reason I say I'm cheating is because this is actually our last sermon in 2 Samuel until after Christmas, but Gav's going to be preaching on chapter 12 after Christmas. But I'm just giving you... you know, just a, a little bit here. And with that most awesome setup, David, uh, sorry, Nathan, the prophet story about the poor guy with the little ewe lamb, sees David explode with rage and David gets undone. And the dreadful pronouncement of the deep and ongoing consequences for his actions then comes in chapter 12 from verse 10. It says, now therefore, this is God speaking to David, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me. And took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I'll take your wives and give them to one who is close to you. And he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. Secret, inverted commas. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. And if you're even a little bit familiar with the rest of 2 Samuel and, and with 1 and 2 Kings you'll have some sense of how serious God was in that pronouncement. And if you aren't familiar with the rest of 2 Samuel, don't worry, we'll be resuming from chapter 13 in term 3-ish next year. So, I think, yeah. But for now, let's consider some of the rather obvious implications from God's teaching to us this morning. Uh, one of the Big, big, big ticket items in the sin of David is easily his misuse of power. Uh, put up your hand if you've done any safe ministry training in the Sydney Diocese. Good. Then you will know, whether you're a member or not, from your safe ministry essentials, that abuse is the misuse of power. If you haven't done safe ministry training, because you don't need it, you don't minister to, to youth, young adults, whatever, um, do it anyway. It's so profoundly helpful just to get a sense of how your vast network of relationships and interactions with people always have this thing called power in flux. And being aware of how you influence others and how others influence you can be a really, really helpful thing just for growing in Christian maturity. And note of, what do you call that, like, caveat, my wife happens to work for the Safe Ministry Board, so I have a vested interest in this, but even if she didn't, I'd still be plugging it. Second thing that's really, really obvious is when it comes to sexual immorality, it is flee. In one level, all sins are equal in the sight of God. They're all expressions of the idea that I decide what's right and wrong myself, not God. All sin is rebellion against God. In that sense, it's all equal. And yet the Scriptures specify sexual sin as being worse than all the others. You can read this from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. All other sins a man commits are outside his body, says the Apostle. But sexual sin is not like that. You sin against yourself. And we all know, we all have some sense of it. When we do things that we're ashamed of bodily, there's a different feeling to it. It's got more sort of clout, it's got more hold. And the thing I love about sexual sin 
I say that just to get your attention because of what's going to come next. Don't ever misquote me on this. The thing I love about sexual sin, don't misquote me, is the ease with which we know how to approach it. You see, some, there are some ways that being transformed by the renewing of my mind in order to be a good servant of the Lord Jesus and to love my neighbour and love my God takes a lot of thought, takes a lot of effort. I've actually got to do thinking and planning. Not so with sexual sin. Because the command with sexual sin is simple. You don't think, you just flee. You don't negotiate, you just cut it off. Uh, Maybe as a bloke, that's why I like it. It's very, very simple. What's the response to sexual sin? No compromise, hardcore, kill, no prisoners. You're better off negotiating with a terrorist than negotiating with your sexual sin. The phone calls you to sin, you don't need the phone. The computer calls you to sin, you don't need the computer. The window that you look out of caused you to sin, for goodness sake, border it up. Flee, cut, gouge, kill. You don't require much calculation when it comes to sexual sin. That's what Jesus says. It's the two times within a few sentences you heard in that Matthew 5 reading. You don't want to go to hell, cut it off. That's Jesus. Better to, to live without a hand and an eye in this life than if they cause you to sin. He is talking about lust and adultery, sexual sin. Just cut it off, kill it. You ever notice that opportunity is the biggest contributing factor to sinfulness and abuse? You want someone to sin lots, give them lots of opportunity to do it. So when it comes to sexual sin, cut off the opportunity. That's a good approach, isn't it? Never be apologetic for being considered hardcore when it comes to cutting, to killing, to gouging that sexual sin. Because it will stuff your life real good. One of the favourite quotes from a preacher said it like this, he goes, Sin, and he's in the context talking about sexual sin, sin will send you to hell and it'll ruin your life along the way. I love it because it's simple. But one of the reasons I cheated, terrible use of the word given what we're looking at, but, and dug a little bit into chapter 12, is because of this one little verse... And it's a really, really important verse because if I didn't have this verse, I'd be that stupid moralist preacher who gets up here and says, you're really bad, stop it or God's going to be angry, amen. Right? That's not how this goes. It's when Nathan confronts David with that whole awesome thing about the ewe lamb or whatever, David says to him at the end, I have sinned against Yahweh, he knows it. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken away your sin you are not going to die literally overlooked or or passed over is the word that's used there he can't overlook his sin nathan can't no one can but god can if he so chooses Uh, of course you and i know that the the means by which god passed over all sin for all people is through the blood of the lord jesus christ who, unlike David, was only ever always perfectly righteous and yet still resolutely marched to the place where his own people would hand him over to the Gentiles in order to be executed, in order to cover over our sin. 
The reality is that there is sexual immorality and it abounds everywhere, and including in the church. And yet, our God is, in the, is, uh, is and always has been in the, the business of legit forgiveness, legit reconciliation and healing. It is interesting that the scriptures, one of the possible, and there's very few of these, three from by my reckoning, one of the possible means by which a marriage can end, not must end, but can end, is in the case of adultery. Jesus says, you know, but for the sake of marital unfaithfulness, they should be uh, remain married. And I get that, because you do something like that, you sort of erode the very sort of bedrock that marriage is supposed to be, faithfulness. Just, what have you got to, to go with if you sort of erode that? However... I'm convinced it must be the case within the household of God, there will be all sorts of unsung heroes who you'll never know about, who in their marriage have endured something like that and yet have chosen to forgive, to reconcile, to do the hard yards because they know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ. They know that his blood is powerful to cover all sin. The reason I cheated and stuck in my head into chapter 12 is because that's actually the final word. Uh, from God and this morning from me. Let me conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for our righteous King, the Lord Jesus Christ, who resolutely marched toward that cross in order to bear the penalty for all our sin, including our sexual immorality, which is deep and damaging. Heavenly Father, we thank you that because we can know the love of the Lord Jesus Christ, we can know in reality reconciliation, forgiveness, healing. Father, where there is reconciliation, forgiveness and healing needed in terms of sexual sin in particular, we pray that in the power of your spirit you are granted to us, both as individuals and as a body of Christ. Heavenly Father, where there is temptation, may we take Jesus' words so seriously and take David's activity as a warning so seriously to cut it off, to gouge it out, to kill it, to put it to death, to flee from it, not calculate, not negotiate, but to flee. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.